Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. And we're a little late again this time. I was sick. Yeah, you were. And it wasn't COVID. I had to get tested to go back to work. I did have a cold or the flu or something. Yeah, but you're better now, right? Yeah, I still feel yucky, but I think it's because um, I didn't get a lot of sleep the other night. You know how if you have some kind of symptoms like that, like if you don't get sleep, you start to feel like a sore throat kind of and stuff. I yeah, think that's all it is. But anyway, you have an update. I do have an update. I have other ones that I should probably do, but this one ended I think up. I say this every week. I probably have. Some. You probably do. Well, maybe next time you can do them. I don't know what they are. Okay. Well, maybe you can look stuff up and find out. <laughs> <laughs> As uh, if. Okay. But anyway, this is an update of episode 97, the Sarah Everard mm. murder. Kind yes. of. It's that and more. So I got my information mostly from The Guardian and BBC and a little from iNews, which I think is the independent. And again, news flash to the UK. I don't have an issue with paywalls. But I also also don't have a bank account full of pound notes. <laughs> they need so, to get over themselves. May, if you make it possible for people in other countries to subscribe, you'll have more subscribers. I was able to subscribe to The Guardian. Thank you. And so I, that's where I got a lot of my information. But I did get some from some of those other places. First, let's travel back almost a year to March 28th, 2021, episode 97 which covered the murder of Sarah Everard in London and the fallout from it. And I won't go into all the details. You can listen to the episode or whatever. In that episode, we learned that Wayne Cousins, the cop who was arrested and later convicted of her kidnapping and murder, had just days before her murder indecently exposed himself twice at a McDonald's in London. At the time, listeners, I'm sure you remember, here we should have some like flashback music. We speculated that obviously if he was doing that, it wasn't the first time he had done it, right? And sure enough, in an update last September, we talked about how police in Kent had received a report of a man driving Cousins' car, obviously Cousins, driving around without anything (laughs) from the waist down. Yeah, And apparently it was blown off because a man reported it to the police you know but it was cousin's car it it was investigated slightly as we talked about in september but no arrest was ever made more on that later so to update more now some of what i'm going to talk about will likely not be new news to our uk listeners since it's trickled out over the past five or so months since i last updated but i think it will be news to most people and there is definitely some new stuff here a lot of the new stuff came this month after the release of a report by the Independent Office for Police Conduct, which investigates police misconduct in the UK, which started investigating the culture at the Metropolitan Police, Uh which we lovingly know as Scotland Yard. And of course, we think of as Inspector Lindley and Adam Daglish and, you know, all these fictional characters who we admire. And of course, they're just a bunch of sleazy poop heads. The IOPC started investigating in 2018 after it was reported a woman was taken advantage of sexually while in custody. Hmm. 
Now, we talk frequently and have with the Wayne Cousins case and others about how even though people use only a few bad apples excuse for bad cops, they are always protected by a culture of the so-called good apples who enable them, let them get away with it and more. As we've talked about previously as well, the IOPC investigation and a couple others that resulted from Cousins' arrest, it takes a shocking incident that outside people get outraged about not people within a police department like that rape in 2018 and Sarah Everard's murder before police will start looking inward, at least ostensibly looking inward, right? Yeah. And even then, their words of shock are tempered with code that says they don't really take responsibility and don't understand what all the fuss is about. Mm-hmm. I'll talk a little more about that after we look at some of the stuff that's come up in the past five months. Here's one thing I bet a lot of people didn't know. Interesting enough, Cousins was nicknamed the rapist, cute nickname, when he worked as an officer at the Civil Nuclear Constabulary, which was his job before joining the Met in 2018. He was called that because, quote, he made women feel uncomfortable. Mm. It's not elaborated on, and you've got to wonder just how he was doing that. And it seems it would be a little more than that if that was his nickname nickname, and apparently everyone knew about it and thought it was funny and nobody saw it as a red flag (laughs) chief inspector of constabulary sir tom windsor told bbc radio 4 that he was aware of the nickname windsor said and he also had allegedly a reputation in terms of drug abuse extreme pornography and other offenses of this kind In fact, a guy who worked with Cousins at a garage before Cousins became a cop said that Cousins was known for being attracted to violent sexual pornography. And to me, for you to be known for something like that, I mean, maybe people have their pornographic peccadillos that they keep to themselves, but to be known for that, you must really... Although guys are gross and talk I know they are, they are. When Cousins joined the Met in 2018, his vetting wasn't done correctly, Assistant Hmm. Met Commissioner Nick F. Grave said recently. For instance, it was acknowledged that a vehicle associated with him had been identified in the Kent Police investigation into the naked driving incident that should have come up in the vetting, but didn't. Apparently, too, you'd think if he was commonly known as the rapist, Hmm. some of that behavior that led to that nickname would have come up if they were vetting him. Previously, around the time he was arrested for Everard's murder, the Met had said that a review found no information available at the time that would have kept him from being hired by the Met. He left the Met in February 2020 to work for the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command, a group that Hmm. patrolled diplomatic property like embassies and stuff. When he joined that service, he was also not given enhanced vetting because speculation went it doesn't appear that there's an official statement on this you know it's hard to tell the way british reporters write but they say it was said that and it's Mm. like who said but anyway that there was a rush to get officers into the force following the paris terror attacks of 2017 and you know i'm not an hr professional but it seems to me if you're worried about terrorism you take more care to vet the people coming onto your force one would think particularly if they're guarding embassies but what do i know right Mm. in a statement released by the met in january they said quote we continue to build up a picture of cousin's career and wider activities We would like to appeal for anyone who has information of concern about Cousins, whether police colleagues or members of the public, to contact us directly. 
We want the public to have confidence in our vetting. We're yeah. taking extra measures to ensure our processes are the best they can be and address any potential weaknesses. Well, that's good. You have to wonder if the Met really dropped the ball in the vetting, you know, what the guy said they didn't do it correctly or just didn't give a shit. Because here's some stuff that came up that happened at the Met during and before Cousins' time. The IOPC report that came out at the end of January had a bunch of stuff, including that there was a WhatsApp messaging group of a now disbanded investigation group in Westminster, most out of the Charing Cross station. And this all came out as the IOPC investigated thousands and thousands of social media messages between cops and stuff. Some of it that came out in their report, I got a lot of this from The Guardian and some of it from, I think, The Sun, um, was, get ready, and I'm going to use some bad words because I I don't want to use euphemisms. I want to give the full... You never use bad words. No, there are some words I wouldn't normally say. Okay. Oh, Oh, wow. One male officer wrote to a female officer, quote, I would happily rape you if I was single. If I was single, I would happily chloroform you. Hmm. Another officer wrote to his buddies, getting a woman into bed is like spreading butter. It can be done with a bit of effort using a credit card, but it's quicker and easier just to use a knife. They wrote about attending a festival dressed as known sex offenders and a molested child. I guess some kind of costume festival. Numerous messages about rape and raping each other were sent. Not only in that WhatsApp group, but a Facebook group with some other officers. One officer messaged another saying he was going to attack his partner, I think his girlfriend, and wrote, swear to God, I'm going to smack her. Another message shows an officer bragging about visiting a sex worker when he was using steroids. (sighs) One officer was affectionately dubbed among his buddies, McRapey Raperson. Hmm. And I don't think that was cousins, but, you know, one message said, quote, (laughs) knock a bird about and she will love you, adding that they are biologically programmed to like that shit. Mm. And just a reminder, these are men who are supposed to be out there protecting people from the kind of abuse they're promoting and bragging about, not to put too sharp a point Mm -hmm. on it. And in case you're wondering how the Met reacted when all this came out, they denied misogyny was a factor. A spokesperson said, we do not believe there's a culture of misogyny in (laughs) that. There are a number of recommendations in the report that we will consider before formally replying to the report. And the spokesman also said the Met is, quote, an organization of more than 44,000 people. There will be a small number with attitudes and beliefs that are not welcome in the Mm -hmm. Met. We will challenge, educate, and discipline as appropriate. Mm -hmm. And again, there's that few bad apples excuse. But here's something. When you deny that it's even a problem and try to cite all the people who aren't doing it, then it is a problem. And Hmm. it's not just the bad apples. The IOPC said officers who knew about the messages were afraid to report it or say anything to the guys doing it. Those who did were, quote, harassed, humiliated, and excluded, unquote. Hmm. Officers who challenged sexual harassment in general said they were treated as the weary female, told it was part of police culture and that they should accept, quote, play the game or stay quiet or leave. In fact, messages sent between officers said of those who they knew that or they thought were going to report them said, quote, there's a few of those grassing cunts I would like to knife. And for the non-UK audience, grassing means speaking out, narking, thinking, tattling, snitching, Mm, whatever you want to call it, grassing. And I know that from reading British mystery novels. (laughs) 
The ILPC said messages showed attitudes that left ethnic minority and female staff in fear and could show officers being discriminatory to their colleagues and staff and shared a series of racist messages and others as well. Mm-hmm. There was one, and this one is a little hard to understand, but these guys aren't all you know, literary giants in their messages, and I'm quoting it. P-W-P-E-H-C-L-M. People with pre-existing heart conditions, lives matter. Should have offered him a Kit Kat and a nice lie down. Murdering cunts and bring all the lefties, I say. We can sing Kumbaya with Kum spelled C-U-M, which (laughs) we all know is porn for cum. And embrace our multi-gender, ethnic, and sexual backgrounds whilst denouncing all the fascists in the Met, which I take is supposed to be some kind of sarcasm. And I was going to say, he's being sarcastic, but... um... It's, he's showing, proving it. He's well, showing, he's, yeah, yes. exactly. There were also messages abusing Muslims and disabled people. And as hard as this may be to believe, some officers tried to defend the messages saying they were just banter. Mm, yeah, you know, boys will around. be boys. Exactly. Or I guess lads will be lads in England. The mm. IOPC, however, disagreed. It said the behavior was part of an offensive Met police culture, not just rogue individuals or a few bad apples. They even use that phrasing. The IOPC had found evidence that reports of sexual harassment were not dealt with sensitively within the Met. Gee, there's another surprise. And the report says the culture of bullying appears to have been accepted and not challenged. A reason for not reporting such behavior was a lack of confidence that it would be dealt with effectively and fear of repercussions. Overall, the report cited a culture of, quote, bullying and aggressive behavior, banter used to excuse oppressive and offensive behaviors, discrimination, toxic masculinity, misogyny, and sexual harassment. Hmm. 14 officers were investigated and two lost their jobs for gross misconduct. Misconduct was proven against another two, with one officer receiving a written warning, while another four face measures to improve their performance. Hmm. Constable Jonathan Coben, 35, and ex-constable Joel Borders, 45, were both charged with five counts of sending grossly offensive messages on a public communications work. Constable William Neville, 33, was charged with two counts of the same offense. The three of them are appearing before Westminster Magistrates Court on March 16th. Well, the charges were first announced in January, the Crown Prosecution Service, which is the prosecutor in England, wouldn't release their names at first because of operational reasons. I'm sure you can hear my air quotes. But a few days later, they had second thoughts and released them because after all, it's standard in UK criminal cases for identities to be published, just like it is here. A source told the iNews service that lawyers representing the three officers pleaded with the CPS not to reveal their identities because they were concerned about their welfare and that any trial could be at risk of prejudice if they were linked to cousins. And you know what the Maureen Prosecution Service says? (laughs) You lie down with dogs, you're going to get fleas, fellas. That's right, guys. So suck it. And guess what? One guy was promoted despite the fact that he was disciplined for taking part in that messaging crap. And to quote Maine U.S. Senator Susan Collins, speaking after Trump's first impeachment, I'm sure he learned his lesson. Yes, and everything will be fine from there on. This report wasn't the first, just the latest and hardest to hit Dame Cressida Dick, the chief (laughs) of the Metropolitan Police. Another recent hit for her came after the murders of two sisters. Biba Henry and Nicole Smallman in 2020. 
The tour last seen on June 4, 2020, celebrating Henry's 46th birthday in Friant Country Park in Wembley in North London. It was a small group, and the two sisters stayed behind after the others left. They wanted to keep hanging out together and enjoying the day. When the family didn't hear from them after 36 hours, they became concerned. They reported them missing to police on June 6, but police weren't interested in investigating, even though Adam Stone, Henry's boyfriend, said that Smallman's flatmate said she hadn't come home and he couldn't trace Henry. She wasn't at her place. His um, He couldn't find her using a phone finding app. Her bank account hadn't been touched. And no one they knew had seen the two women since that day in the park. Huh. Since police had no interest, the family started looking for them. And on June 7th, Stone, Adam Stone, found their bodies behind some trees. Uh-huh. They had both been stabbed repeatedly. Uh-huh. Subsequently, two constables stationed at the crime scene took photos of their bodies and shared them with friends on WhatsApp. <laughs> PC Dennis Chaffer, 47, and Jamie Lewis, 32, were charged with misconduct in public office. And in December, they were sentenced to two years and nine months in prison. The women's mother, Mina Smallman, said the officers dehumanized our children. She wouldn't accept an apology from the Met and said she believed racism was a factor and police's disinterest in searching for the two sisters because they were Black. Mm -hmm. In September last year, or 2020 rather, Black Lives Matter called for Cressida Dick's resignation, saying she failed to acknowledge racism in the Met. And there were other things that came back to bite Cressida Dick, but that's one of the more telling ones. This was uh, obviously pretty bad. Pretty bad. And it huh. happened, keep in mind, it happened in 2020 because there's a point I want to make about that. So fast forward to now, the IOPC says that 12 gross misconduct or regular misconduct notices have so far been served on police officers from several forces regarding the Cousins case. And the ILPC's investigation of that is separate from the one with all the text messages and stuff. I point this out and the two sisters' murders. When the ILPC findings were released a month ago, the Met took great pains to remind people that investigation was based on things that happened in 2017. Mm -hmm. They didn't mention that, for instance, the report took a few years and a lot of the text messages and stuff were actually from 2019. And the Met's response was, Quote, we are deeply sorry to Londoners and everyone they have failed with their, they have failed with their appalling conduct and acknowledge how this will damage the trust and confidence of many in the Met. Maybe they're saying they to distance themselves from the people in the report. Anyway, probably since this reprehensible behavior was uncovered in 2017, we have taken a series of measures to hold those responsible to account and stamp out unacceptable behavior. But have they? Obviously not. Uh-uh. The, the thing that happened with the two sisters in 2020, yeah. three years after, and the Wayne Cousins investigation last year. For instance, in the Cousins investigation, you may remember a probationary Met officer shared an inappropriate image of Cousins after he was arrested on social media, and other officers are alleged to have shared information linked to the prosecution. The fact that it didn't look like anyone was taking the indecent exposure reports from right before Everard was killed seriously is another sign nothing's changed. There were things about those reports that quickly linked them to Cousins, and it's not clear and it never has been clear who knew what before she was killed three days or four days later. But obviously, you got to wonder if he was getting a pass of some kind. 
Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, and that's like the top position in the country after Prime Minister. I've seen some things online compare it to the Secretary of State, but it's not really comparable to our Secretary of State. She's like in charge of the police and everything. Like she's the boss of all that stuff. So she's like in charge of domestic right, right. operations. Kind yes, of? yes. Okay. Uh, that's a good way to put it. And Thank I you. apologize to our UK listeners if that sounds ignorant, but you know, you always hear about the Home Secretary, but you're really nobody yeah. ever yeah. anyway she said on february 2nd she was appalled and sickened by the findings of the report the the one with all the text mm-hmm. messages and stuff she said the met had problems with its culture and told the house of commons home affairs committee that examples of appalling conduct by serving officers could not be dismissed as one-off incident but when she was asked when pretty patel was asked if there was institutional misogyny in the force She gave a typical political wishy-washy answer, saying it had cultural and attitudinal issues that suggest a failure of leadership in some quarters. Oh, in some quarters. She didn't say the M word. Memo to the world. Women in top offices can never call out misogyny or the men who control their positions will get pissed off and they'll be out. They'll be just another bitching, complaining woman That's playing right. the misogyny card. Right, yeah. Oh, she's just saying that. This is right. what all these women right. always say. We see it in the workplace oh, when yeah. there's a female boss and we see it in government and we see it everywhere else. Patel did not rule out launching a major inquiry into policing like the 1999 McPherson report into the murder of a Black teenager, Stephen Lawrence, which found that the Met was institutionally racist. And that was 1999. Huh. So you can see that you haven't made a lot of progress. And by the way, I just read a couple P.D. James books written right after that report came out that reference it. And it shows some real discomfort with that label. And I think it's taken people more than 20 years to really understand institutional racism for what it is well some people obviously other people don't understand it at all right right but anyway pretty patel said well she wasn't ruling out a major inquiry she at first wanted to find out what on earth is going on Mm. through existing smaller inquiries like the iopc one the one related to the cousins to sarah everard's murder and one of those is led by dame elish angiolini qc which is looking into Cousin's previous behavior and whether any red flags were missed when he was vetted. This should be like finding, you know, a donut in an otherwise empty box, I would think, that no as shit. far as finding the red flags that were missed. Another, led by Baroness Louise Casey, is looking at the culture and standards within, within the Met Police and its vetting, recruitment, and training procedures. And I'm like, do you have to have a title to get one of those jobs? Well, I was going to say, maybe one of the issues is it's these white entitled, um, right. literally well, pretty titled people. Oh, white. yeah, that's true. But I was going to say, or do you automatically get the title if you're given one of the jobs? In any case, and you knew this was coming, we fought and won a revolution 250 <laughs> years ago, so I wouldn't have to care about the answer to that shit. Yeah. Pretty Patel also said she had confidence in Metropolitan Police Commissioner Dame Cressida Dick, and she'd make the changes that were required, Dick would. And well, as you know, these things go a certain way. That was February 2nd. And since then, outrage continued to build and everyone started calling for Dick to get the old sack. On the morning of February 10th, headlines were that Cressida Dick was saying she wasn't stepping down. 
But like I said, these things all go a certain way. And by the end of the day on February 10th, she had stepped down. Yeah. And I only know about all this from what I read in the papers. I don't live over there and I don't hear all the stuff that's going on. And she's had a pretty rough ride ever since she became a commissioner of the Met. But I will say that the culture, including misogyny at the Met, is so deeply embedded. I'm not sure how a woman was going to turn that around. And by that, I mean, it's not a shot at her or at women being in charge, obviously, but you can't put a woman in charge of a misogynistic organization and expect the culture to change. In fact, I think a lot of people end up digging in more. I've seen it at newspapers I've worked at. I know, Becky, you've seen it in the workplace. I'm not saying a woman shouldn't be put in those positions, but I'm saying putting a woman in that position while having a male, a heavy structure below her. It means nothing is going to change and the woman will have to do a balancing act that she can't win. Yeah. And then I they'll be so able too. to sack her and, or she'll hit, you know, she has to resign and then everybody will say, see, we put a woman yeah. in charge and look what happened. The right? next one will be a guy. Cause they say, well, we tried a woman. It didn't work. Right. So. Right. So just let's go back put to a guy in there, having yeah. a guy who understands that it's just banter when you, you know, advocate. Just guys, come on. Anyway, just before Christmas, Wayne Cousins was transferred to a high security prison in Franklin in County Durham, where he promptly caught COVID. A source to the I news service said that quote, people have been talking about karma, but it looks like he will be okay. And you may remember the way he had lured Everard into his car is as a police officer, he told her she was violating COVID restrictions. Mm -hmm. So the source said, there's not a lot of sympathy for him, though, given his former job and what he did with the fake COVID arrest. And I just want to add, it's all well and good for people in law enforcement to be smug. They are not Wayne Cousins, after all, and they can feel better about themselves because of that. But it's obvious they were pretty fine with Wayne Cousins until he got caught. Three different law enforcement agencies were. It's not the Wayne Cousins of the world that are the problem. It's the good apples that allow Wayne Cousins to get away with what they do. If the culture changed from inside, Cousins never would have become a cop and then been enabled through those three different law enforcement agencies. Exactly. He probably would have been caught the first time he took his dick out yeah. and gone to jail. It'll be interesting to see what else the investigation into his past turns up. I'm not saying he killed anyone else, but you have to wonder if he really just went from weenie waving to kidnapping a murder just like that. Um, yeah. And I know I'm beating the drum, but yeah. this whole bad apples thing really bothers me because cops in that whole IOPC report showed it. The bad apples are enabled by everyone else to get away with it. Cops knew he was indecently exposing himself and nobody did anything about it. If they don't recognize that as a red flag, then I that's know. a problem. If they don't recognize a guy bragging about how he likes hardcore violent pornography, you know, they're looking into whether there's red flags. The thing is, people have to recognize the red flags. I know, flag. I know. And, I know. I, and that's what happens when you have systemic misogyny, when it's normalized for people to think that all that stuff is okay, and that anyone who has a problem with it is just being oversensitive or whatever. So then if, guys like him if, are enabled, and then they're all shocked, shocked. Well, why be shocked that he did that? 
it's know? not even it's not even people that think it's okay that people think it's gross but they're just like oh well that's you him. know whatever yeah he's just a you gross know, guy that, whatever yeah. haha isn't it funny let's call him the rapist it's, yeah it's someone doing something like that there's a serious right. problem with somebody but that does yes, that shit it is there is a serious problem and i also think it's frightening all those text messages those are people who are being called to go to somebody's house because they've been beaten up by their boyfriend or something. But anyway, but you have something different tonight, don't you? Yes, I do. Oh, was that your only update? Yeah, I told you because it was I long that I wasn't going to do my other ones. Okay. Yes, hey, Are I you do. disappointed? Do you want me to just wing off a few? No. no. Yes, mine's totally different. It's not a man-hating one. Ah. But that's always inherent and... In- are i mean that's always well, i'm sure there'll be something about us to to um criticize well, men for. there's a bit of misogyny and i think you'll yeah. see i know this topic that i'm going to do has been covered by a lot of other podcasts all right i'm turning it off now then there have been <laughs> books and documentaries i haven't listened to any of the podcasts especially if i know i'm going to do a topic i just mm. don't want to hear what other people have to I'm say the same before way. i do it i don't want to be oh. colored by what they say i didn't read the books because if I read a book, it's going to make my script way too long. Mm-hmm. Make read one after, but and I didn't even watch any documentaries. I just made it up as I went along, basically. No, um, I researched newspaper stories from the time using newspapers.com, like we always like to. I read current stories on the subject matter and some scientific journal articles, too. Mm. Um, my sources that are not in any kind of order include Annals of Gastroenterology. And guess, did I say Yeah, that, that sounds right. The San Francisco Examiner, the Victoria Daily Times, British Columbia, the Richmond Times Dispatch, Virginia, the Latrobe Bulletin in Pennsylvania, the Lincoln Journal Star, Nebraska. Wow. The Buffalo Times, New York, the Evening World, New York, the Sun, New York, the Star Gazette, Elmira, New York. Ah, yeah. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle, New York, the Buffalo Courier, New York, New York Tribune, New York City, the New York Times, the Evening World, New York, the Washington Post. Nova PBS website, Library of Congress website, The Conversation, which is an academic journal, BBC News, Gavi.org, the Vaccine Alliance website, Smithsonian Magazine, National Geographic Magazine, and the work of a chronic typhoid germ distributor by George Soper, PhD, which was published in 1907 in the Journal of American Medical Association. Wow, you were busy. There was a lot. Of, and there's so much information oh and a lot of it is is in different places so i didn't cite it every single time but stuff that needs a specific citation i give it even a lot of the quotes you find everywhere so mine probably didn't find too many places because they were from newspaper articles that other people probably haven't read since they were published i got interested in this subject because recently i was having a conversation with someone about typhoid mary And this person didn't know that Typhoid Mary was a real person. And I knew that Typhoid Mary was a real person, but I didn't realize, or I realized that I didn't really know much about her, except for that she was a healthy person who got people sick and she was a cook. That's about all I knew. She's been discussed a lot in the past couple of years because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that people without COVID symptoms can spread the illness. Mm. However, the two illnesses are totally unrelated and spread totally differently, uh, as we'll find out. But 
as I did my research, I found that there were some parallels with today and 100 years ago in regard to like people's attitudes and public opinion. There are other aspects of the story that I didn't really think about that'll come up. We'll talk about them. And it's not really a criminal, it's not a crime story, but she was treated as a criminal. So, mm. Yeah, no, hey, we make the rules. We make our own rules. The first time I heard about Typhoid Mary was when I was a kid in one of the Sunday comic sections where they have Ripley's Believe It or Not. Mm. There was a cartoon drawing of a crazed looking woman with long hair stirring a pot and a little blurb about Typhoid Mary and her story. And I realized that was the picture I had in my mind all these years. But Mary Malin, the real the person they called Typhoid Mary, was a in real life was a good looking tall woman from Ireland. At the time she became notorious, she was in her mid 40s and she had the reputation as a hardworking, excellent cook. She cooked for some of the wealthiest families in New York. Employers often mentioned in the newspapers were Jay Coleman Drayton, who was married to Charlotte Astor of the wealthy Astor family, Henry Gilsey, who was a well-known lawyer at the time, and Healy's Restaurant on the Upper West Side of, Man- of New York. I don't know where. I don't know much about, I'm sorry, I don't know a lot of the geography of New York City. The fact that her patrons were the wealthy elite is probably why she was discovered in the first place. Mm-hmm. On August 4th, 1906, Mary Mellon started working for the Charles Henry Warren family, who had rented a house at Oyster Bay on Long Island, New York. About three weeks later, on August 26th, household members started getting sick. Between August 27th and September 3rd, six people out of the 11 at the house came down with typhoid fever. Before I continue, let me explain what typhoid fever is as best I can. I'm clearly no scientist, so cut me some slack. The cause of typhoid fever is the bacteria known as Salmonella typhi, which is highly contagious. The disease is spread by ingesting the bacteria, usually by eating and drinking contaminated food and water. It lives mostly in poop or other human waste. Hmm. It's still around in a lot of developing countries where sanitation is poor and it's hard for people to get clean water to drink. Even now, up to 20 million people contract the illness annually and over 150,000 people die from it each year. The symptoms are much like a lot of bacterial infections. Fever, stomach pain, gastric issues, cough, loss of appetite, weakness, and headache. There are two vaccines to prevent typhoid fever, and though it can be treated with antibiotics, there are strains now that are resistant to treatment. Back in 1906, there were no antibiotics and there were no vaccines. People either got better or they died. Mm -hmm. 13,000 people died of typhoid fever in the United States that year. In New York State in 1906, 639 deaths from typhoid were reported. Everyone in the Warren household survived, but the man who owned the house wanted to find out what had caused the outbreak. He was worried he would have trouble renting it out the next summer if he didn't find the source of the bacteria. That winter in 1906, the landlord hired George Soper to investigate. George Soper was an investigator who tracked breakouts of different illnesses. Some sources said he was a civil engineer and some said he was a sanitation investigator. The New York Sun calls him Dr. Soper, and he did have a PhD from Columbia University. His bachelor's degree, I think, was in civil engineering. It was from Rensselaer Polytechnic Mm. Institute in Troy, New York. The Collar City. George George Soper wrote a pamphlet that was published in 1907 in which he described his investigation, though he didn't name the people involved. It was later reprinted in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and uh, that's what I read. It was Mm. a very good 
a good short, nice, short, concise article. You can tell he wasn't a an academic. Threatened. Yeah. And the side about George, I've read some disparaging comments about him in recent articles that he was, quote, a self-professed expert, and he wasn't a medical doctor, so he didn't know what he was talking about. But his job was really an investigator, not a medical doctor, and he was interested in medicine and studied infectious diseases and how they spread because of his job. And his work was investigating, not diagnosing or anything like that. And he did his job and you'll see. One of the recent articles I wrote was very down on this whole thing that we can talk about at the end, everything that happened. And it, it's easy in the present day to look down on it, but it's nuanced. It's not black and white. George noted that typhoid is unusual in Oyster Bay. And as we'll discuss later, it's because Oyster Bay was an affluent area and typhoid fever mostly happened in the slums and poor cities of the city. He said that none of the cases seemed to come from the first victim. In other words, the person who fell ill did not pass it on to the others, the first person. The incubation period is about three weeks. At the time of the first outbreak, there hadn't been any others in that area recently. Milk was often the source of typhoid, but the investigation found that a lot of other families got their milk and cream from the same supplier and no one else had contracted typhoid. Water is also a common source of the bacteria. The house got its water from a well, and there was an outdoor toilet as well, an outhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, the family used the indoor water closet, and the servants used the outhouse, or privy, as they called it. Back then, sewage was pumped into cesspools, which are basically holes in the ground that hold sewage. The houses had pipes that carried the waste and dumped it into the cesspools. Ugh. The house had two cesspools, and both were over 200 feet from the well. The household water was kept in an outside tank and then pumped into a tank inside the home where it came out of the faucets. The water in the well, the tanks, and coming out of the taps was all checked and found free of salmonella typhi. Dr. Soper came to the conclusion that it was more likely that something or someone had brought the germs into the house. The family loved soft-shell clams for dinner. Dr. Soper thought it was quite possible the clams could be to blame. He found out the family got their clams from, quote, an old Indian woman who lived in a tent on the beach. Since it was now winter when he was doing his investigation, George wasn't able to track this woman down. He noted the clams were often dug from sand that was contaminated with sewage, though. Ugh. He also found that soft-shell clams were a popular dinner item in Oyster Bay, and there have been no other outbreaks of the illness from families that had been eating them. The last time the Warren family had eaten clams was July 15th. It would have been very unusual for a typhoid fever to take six weeks to show up after the bacteria was ingested. George thought that if some kind of food had caused it, it would have been eaten after August 20th. The only outbreak of typhoid in the home had been five years before. And since then, there had been families running the home every summer without any illness. So with the clams rolled out, George tried to find out if anyone had left the premises in the weeks prior to the outbreak. Had they gone to visit someone else's home or another location? But none of the sick had been anywhere other than the house. George listed the people who got sick in the order of who fell ill. The first person was the daughter of the family, then two maids. He noted one of the maids was colored, although I don't know why that's relevant. But then came the mother of the household, another daughter, and the gardener who was always there at the home. In other words, an employee of the landlord, not the Warren family. Dr. Soper thought, was there some kind of event that happened around the time of August 20th that could give a clue as to what caused the outbreak? 
He found out the family had hired a new cook on August 4th. She came highly recommended from an employment agency. She left about three weeks after the outbreak. He wanted to find her, hoping he, she could answer some questions about events in the household. He finally found Mary Mallon, but she didn't want to tell him anything about herself. George wasn't put off, though. He investigated her background through the employment agency, etc., and he was able to uncover most of Mary's work history in the previous 10 years. He found that in those 10 years, Mary had worked for eight families, and there were typhoid outbreaks in seven of the households. Starting back in 1900, Mary worked for a family in Mamaronic, New York, which is a town a bit northeast of New York City on Long Island Sound. It was the family's summer residence and a visitor fell ill in early September. The young man had recently been in East Hampton, New York, near an army camp that had a lot of ill soldiers. So at the time, people thought he must have contracted the disease there. But he had been at the home in Mamaronic for two weeks prior to getting sick. Dr. Soper thought it was likely he'd gotten the illness after arriving. Mary had been working for this family for three years, but she left her job a few days after the visitor became ill. In 1901, Mary worked for a family in New York. The laundress of the family became sick about a month after Mary started working there in December of 1901. The sick woman was taken to Roosevelt Hospital and found positive for the typhoid bacteria. In 1902, a prominent attorney from New York brought his family to Dark Harbor, Maine. Dark Harbor, Maine is the southernmost town on the island of Isles. The family was to spend the summer there, as rich people often did back then and mm -hmm. still do, and I still guess. Do. The family consisted of four, a mother, father, and two children. And there were five servants. Seven of the nine people fell ill from typhoid, as well as the, a nurse who was hired locally. The first illness occurred two weeks after the family arrived at their vacation home on June 17th. A week later, another person got sick, and the third victim was three days after that. The rest followed in quick succession. The only two people who didn't get sick were the lawyer, who had apparently had typhoid fever years before, and the cook, Mary Mallon. The staff had all been with the family for a month or more prior to the trip. Mary had been specifically hired for the trip and had started working for the family three weeks before they departed for Maine. The house was new at the time, so this was 1902, and as of 1907, when Dr. Soper wrote his article, it had not been rented since. And I'm not, see, that's what he said. I'm not sure how accurate he was about yeah. that. But that family was the first to occupy it. It was a brand new house. By the way, if you Google Dark Harbor, there's a beautiful home for sale. I think it's like 3.5 million bucks. Ah, easy. It was built in 1896, but that's the kind of home that people would rent for the summer, and it it's really pretty. Um, the people who investigated this this outbreak in Dark Harbor were a doctor from Boston and one from Philadelphia. They ascertained that the water supply itself was fine, but somehow the tank inside the home had become contaminated. The theory was that a picture from one of the rooms, because people used to fill a room, you've seen those pictures that are in bowls. So people That's how people used to wash their faces. So right. A pitcher got contaminated with the bacteria and somebody had refilled it by dunking it into the indoor tank um, and spread the bacteria, which caused the whole household supply to be contaminated. As I was doing this article, I'm wondering why people didn't get sick more often. They must have been sick all the time. No kidding. They probably, their immune systems were probably pretty good by yeah. a lot of people. But they later found out that the illness had broken out after they thought that that event had happened. Then they thought that the person who brought the illness in the house was the footman because he was the first person to get sick. He'd somehow contracted it back in New York before they left for Maine, and then he passed it on to the others. 
When Dr. Soper was reading about this outbreak, he didn't find this theory plausible. The incubation periods between the illnesses were too short. There were no other typhoid outbreaks in Dark Harbor around that time, either before or after the case of the New York visitors. In 1904, the family of lawyer Henry Gilsey moved to Sands Point, Long Island, New York, for the summer. Four were family members, seven servants. They arrived on June 1st. A week later, June 8th, the first person became ill. The first person to get sick was the laundress. She had just started working for the family 10 days prior to the trip. Three other people fell ill in the next two weeks. As in the later case in Oyster Bay, the gardener who came with the house was one of the sick. Also affected were the butler's wife and his sister-in-law. The butler's wife's sister was apparently not an employee, but lived in the cottage with the other servants, which was separate from the main house. None of the family members became ill, and of course, the cook, Mary Mallon, who had been with the family nine months, did not get sick. There were no other cases of typhoid fever in the area at the time. Although the laundress was gravely ill, she recovered, and there were no deaths. Again, this outbreak was investigated. The water supply was found to be free of the bacteria. One of the investigators, Dr. R.L. Wilson of the New York City Department of Health, determined the laundress was the person who brought the illness into the household and infected the others. After the Oyster Bay outbreak in September 1907, Mary spent about a month with a family in Tuxedo, New York, which is northwest of the city, near Larchmont and New Rochelle. I always <laughs> think of Dick Van Dyke. Dick and Dick oh. and, Mar- and Laura Petrie. Mary started on September 21st. On October 5th, the laundress fell ill with typhoid fever and was taken to the hospital. Mary left on October 27th. As I said, salmonella typhi is spread through feces. I think this is why the poor laundry women were getting it. Mm. They were handling dirty clothes and undergarments. So they're probably, because I think at least three of the victims, if not four, were laundry women. As we will discuss later, heat kills the bacteria. So if Mary was cooking a lot of hot meals, she wouldn't necessarily be spreading it with the food. But if someone was handling her dirty clothes, they would definitely come in contact with the typhoid bugs. By the time George tracked Mary down in January of 1907, she was working in a home in New York City. This house fell ill like the rest. The first case of typhoid fever happened a few weeks after Mary started her job. A chambermaid got sick and was taken to the hospital on January 29th. On February 8th, a doctor was called to the home to check on the second patient, the daughter of the household. On February 23rd, the daughter died. I looked everywhere to try to find out the daughter's age, whether she was a child or not. I assumed she was a child, but I couldn't find anything. It was very Mm. annoying. I even tried to look for an obituary, but the family's name wasn't printed. I was trying to look Mm. to see if it was like a prominent family's daughter died or something. Right, that's annoying. So it was kind of annoying that in the papers, they didn't say a child died. In this case, the doctor treating the household theorized the cause was the public water supply. Dr. Soper described 26 cases. 24 of them were in the five years prior to his finding Mary Mallon. On March 11, 1907, George Soper presented his case to Dr. Herman M. Biggs, Medical Officer of Health of the New York City Department of Health. Dr. Soper suggested Mary be taken into custody by the Department of Health and her, quote, excretions made the subject of careful bacteriological examination, end quote. (laughs) And they had a clause, and I should have written down the name of it, where if somebody is a danger public 
health danger, they can take them into custody. I don't know if that's still the case. I don't think so. On March 19th, 1907, Mary was arrested, for lack of a better word, and brought to the detention hospital, as Dr. Soper called it. For two weeks, her stools, or a poop, if you (laughs) want to call it that, were examined. So for two weeks, twice they were tested, twice in those two weeks they tested negative, but the other dozen times her feces were teeming with the bacteria. Otherwise, Mary seemed to be in perfect health. Dr. Soper had previously visited Mary at her new workplace and asked her to give him samples, and she told him to fuck off, and he said that she advanced upon him with a fork, Mm. which she probably always seemed, because she did that with a fork to some, she probably always had a fork or knife when they they knocked on the door. She was was a cock, yeah. So, Dr. Josephine Baker a physician who was at the time an assistant to the health department commissioner was assigned to get the samples. Maybe they figured it would be better to send a woman. Mary Mallon was described in an article 25 years after this incident as quote, large, florid, muscular, and shrewd, end quote. Mm. She was also called husky. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But back in 1907 and 1915, when there were a lot of things written about her, she was described as healthy, well-built, buxom, pink-cheeked. So mm. it's all semantics. Well, I think, too, that as the legend grew, as what happens, they had to make her unattractive and exactly. scary. Dr. Soper described her as five feet, six inches tall, blonde, with clear blue eyes, a healthy color, and somewhat determined mouth and jaw. From the photos I've seen of her, she didn't look heavy at all. And she looked like as she was a very nice looking woman. Her hair looks dark, but I guess it's just the photographs back. In any case, Dr. Baker was not able to get Mary to cooperate. And I can't really blame Mary. For all she knew, she was healthy. She'd had the bad luck to work at a bunch of places where there had been outbreaks. And she'd even helped out some of the families during the illnesses. Just because she seemed immune to the disease didn't mean she caused it. And it didn't seem fair at all to her. Dr. Baker's father, Dr. Josephine, had died of typhoid fever. She believed in Dr. Soper's theory of a healthy carrier of the disease. Some doctors at the time didn't. It was a fairly new concept. Dr. Soper had been reading up on the research, and Mary seemed to check all the boxes as an asymptomatic disease carrier. Josephine was not going to give up. She returned to the home with backup, determined to get what she came for. As Dr. Baker told the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in 1932, it was a day in early spring when we went up to get the specimens. I stationed one policeman in the front of the house, one on the nearest side street in the rear, and had an ambulance waiting around the corner. And with a third policeman at my elbow, I knocked at the servant's entrance. Mary, holding a large fork in her hand, let us in before she recognized me. I had previously called alone and asked for specimens, which she absolutely refused to give me. And this is me here again. By specimens, she means they wanted her urine and stool samples. So you can see why that might take you aback if some lady knocked on your door and said, I need samples of your poop and pee. Also, be like, fuck off. It's hard enough to produce pee on demand. Who can produce a poop on demand? I don't know. Back to Josephine. The moment she recognized me, she made a lunge with the fork and then <laughs> turned and fled. By the time we had gotten to the kitchen, she had absolutely disappeared. The servants asserted they had not seen her. We searched that house from cellar to garret for two hours without finding a sign of her. 
Then I went out in the backyard. There had been a light snowfall, and in the yard I could see the footprints leading to the fence. There was a chair against the fence and a little snow knocked off the top. I concluded she'd scaled the fence. Mm. So we started a search of the house next door for an hour, but again without success. The maids insisted they hadn't seen her. I telephoned the department that we couldn't find her. The orders came back. Get the specimens you were sent after or get Mary Mallon. It looked like a deadlock. Discouraged, we started out the front basement door of the old brownstone house when one of the policemen with me touched me on the arm and pointed. There in the cubicle underneath the stoop, almost hidden by ash cans piled in front of it, was a fold of calico caught in the door. We pulled the ash cans away, opened the door, and there was Mary. She had been hidden there by the maids who had then piled ash cans in front of the, her hideout. She absolutely refused to give us the specimens. And so, shouting and kicking, she was hauled by the four policemen to the ambulance and held there while I sat on her chest. At Willard Parker, um, this is Rebecca, was, that was an infectious disease hospital mm. run by the health department on the East River. She just calls it Willard Parker. It was Willard Parker Hospital. We found what Dr. Soper had suspected, that Mary was a constant source of infection to all with whom she came in contact. Doctors urged her to have a gallbladder removed, hoping that that would eliminate the infection. But Mary refused to stand for it. She asserted that was only the health department's way of murdering her. Back to me. This is me now. Doctors believe that the bacteria often found a home in the gallbladder. And they were right. One of the treatments for chronic typhoid infection is removal of the gallbladder. It still is. Um, Mary was sent to North Brother Island, which is an island on the East River between the Bronx and Rikers Island. Riverside Hospital was on the island, and that's where patients with contagious illnesses were confined, such as smallpox, tuberculosis, and in the case of Mary, chronic typhoid infection. Mary was eventually given a small cottage in which to live with a fox terrier as a companion. And I only found the breed in one story. Mm. Only one source had the dog's name. I mean, had the dog's breed. No one had its name. Mary said she was the only person there with typhoid because normally it's not a long-term disease like tuberculosis or or smallpox or something. On June 29th, 1909, Mary filed a writ of habeas corpus, appealing her detention on North Brother Island for the previous two years. She told the New York Supreme Court she was being held against her will like a leper on a leper colony, when in fact she was healthy. Mary's argument was that in each place she had worked where people fell ill, the culp was a contaminated water supply, not her. She said, and I can't do an Irish accent, so Mm. I won't. I was a cook for Mr. Stebbins' family and for other families, and nobody fell sick while I was there. Here's a quote from the New York Sun. In court yesterday morning, she looked as rosy as you please, and as though she could make as valid a resistance as she did then, meaning she when she fought off the police at her arrest. She had in her pocket a page from a Sunday newspaper, which she showed to those who would look at it. It gave a picture of typhoid Mary dropping skulls into a skillet. Mary seemed to think that it was a good picture of herself, (laughs) notwithstanding the sentiment. A physician of the health department said yesterday that if she should be set to work in a milk store tomorrow, in three months, she could accomplish as much as a hostile army, which is true. She probably could Mm -hmm. have. Mary's request was denied and she stayed on the island. Mary had a lot of support from the public. People either didn't think confining her was necessary or they simply didn't believe that a healthy person such as Mary could spread illness. 
1909, W.P. Mason of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute wrote in the journal Science, there are at present moment probably 560 such persons in the state of New York, meaning he's meaning a healthy carrier of typhoid. We cannot keep in detention all these people. Then why single out and imprison one? A letter to the editor of the New York Times signed by New Thought student said, if one unfortunate woman must be labeled typhoid Mary, why not send her other companions, start a colony on some unpleasant island, call it Uncle Sam's Suspects. There collect measles Sammy, tonsillitis Joseph, scarlet fever Sally, mumps Matilda, and meningitis Matthew, and typhoid Mary. Request the sterilized prayers of all religionized germ fanatics, and then leave the United States to enjoy the glorious freedom of the American flag under a medical monarchy. Oh. Sounds similar to something someone would say today. Yeah, wasn't. Brooklyn da- Daily Eagle columnist Julius Chambers was a longtime supporter of Mary Mallon. After she was denied her freedom by the Supreme Court of the state, he wrote in his column Walks and Talks about Mary and a man who had been erroneously diagnosed with leprosy which is now known as Hansen's disease. The Walks and Talks column has some bad information, but unfortunately, it's what a lot of people believe back in 1909. He wrote, if John S. Early, alias the leper, and Mary Mallon, alias Typhoid Mary, will get their heads together and avoid placing their cases in the hands of shyster lawyers, they can give the alleged medical authorities of the general government in all of this city, such as showing up as has not been possible since the days of Dr. Sangrado. And this is Rebecca. He's referring to a fictional character, Dr. Sangrado, from a French a French novel by G. Blah. Hmm. I don't know how to say his name. The doctor in the book was either a fake doctor or a shitty doctor. I'm not sure. But people would call them Dr. Sangrado if someone was a quack back then. The two cases naturally fall into the same category. The man had a persistent case of eczema, which the regulation remedies did not heal. The woman happened to be the servant in families in which was persistent carelessness and the use of cistern and well water. Never did typhoid fever occur in city houses in which the woman worked, which I'm here to say, yes, it did, but whatever. In the first case, that of the man, the diagnosis was leprosy. In the second case, that of the woman, the diagnosis was a capacity to communicate typhoid fever. The latter diagnosis sounds incredible, but is verifiable. I recently dealt with the absurdity of the proposition from a medical viewpoint. Must have been one of his other columns. And yet, Miss Mallon's case is not more remarkable than that of the man early. Theoretically, the same medical talent that declared the Mallon woman an infectious creature decided that early had not the incurable disease that the Washington authorities accused him of having. How will this controversy be settled? And Julius Chambers was echoing what a lot of people felt that Mary was a scapegoat and the medical medical community didn't know what it was talking about. A lot of the public sentiment back then was not unlike some of the things we've been hearing today about the COVID-19 epidemic. Mm -hmm. In early 1910, there was a regime change in the New York State Health Department. The new commissioner released Mary on the condition that she never cook for others again and be monitored. Mary agreed to these requirements and she was free to go. Julius Chambers had something to say then also. He was still on about John Early and Mary Mallon. 
In a February 21st, 1910 column, he lamented the fate of John Early, who was isolated from family and friends, and quote, what his mental sufferings were cannot be imagined by the average mortal. Of Mary Mallon, Julius wrote, for three years, this woman, now 40, has been under daily observation by such wiseacres as a quarantine hospital can boast. Several attempts have been made to secure her release under habeas corpus, but in each instance, the medical faculties of the surrounding cities appeared in a solid phalanx to ask a continuance of the persecution. On Saturday, however, Typhoid Mary was offered her freedom on condition that she would not accept household service anywhere in greater New York. Think of the meaning of such a proviso. If the physicians really believe the woman a thing of danger to any community of which she becomes a part, does it not conclusively prove that the medicine men discredit their own judgments? Is it conceivable that they are willing to have a pestilence breeding creature turned loose mm. in another place where death will follow her wake? Certainly not. It is much more reasonable to assume that they do not want to admit a blunder in a diagnosis and desire to get rid of the case with as little publicity as possible. He goes on to say that the state should give Mary a $5,000 dowry and marry her to a man of courage, <laughs> a man who will never drink unboiled water or eat meat, not thoroughly cooked. And, you know, maybe Mary was happy being single. Yeah, with her little dog. Uh, Julius. Even then, not all women had the goal of being a wife. That's Mary true. was supposed to regularly report to the health department, uh, much like a parolee checking in with her parole officer. And she got a job as a laundress and did as she was told. In December 1911, she sued the Department of Health for $50,000 in damages for wrongly imprisoning her. According to my research, the suit was dropped the following year. That's all that's been written about it. Not explaining why, but I think it was dropped because Mary wasn't around to pursue it. Because here's the thing, doing laundry for a large household sucked. It was really backbreaking work. It was hot. It was uncomfortable. And it didn't pay that great. In contrast, when you worked as a cook for a wealthy household, you were treated with respect relative to other servants. You were called Miss Mallon. You had a nicer room, maybe private quarters. You were paid better. You could do your job without anyone bugging you. You were the boss of the kitchen. And Mary loved to cook, too. And she was good at it. And people loved her cooking. Her employers appreciated her worth ethic. And she was respected. So after a while of following the rules, Mary disappeared and stopped showing up for her check-ins. She couldn't be found. And it was assumed she'd moved to another part of the country. In the meantime, the term typhoid Mary became part of the lexicon. A Buffalo Courier article from January 1914 has a headline, U.S. Navy has typhoid Mary, and goes on to say, the Navy has a typhoid Mary in an officer who distributes a vigorous collection of typhoid germs among his shipmates wherever he goes. After his arrival at a shore station or on a ship, an epidemic of typhoid fever invariably breaks out. The officer's name is withheld by order of the department, but it is said he is now under treatment by New York specialists and that unless he can be freed from the germs, he will be retired from the Navy on the grounds of physical disability. The name Typhoid Mary was supposedly first coined at a medical conference, but it was picked up by the newspapers and caught on, mm. of course. Yeah, they the love The first that paper stuff. to use it was reportedly the New York American, published by William Randolph Hearst, which I think um, 
that was in our episode, the Mad Sculptor, too. Right, right. He kind of egged on that Mad Sculptor. Yeah. The famous illustration, much reproduced, of Mary tossing skulls into a skillet, was first printed on the (laughs) front page of The American in 1909. While Mary was used to sell papers, Hearst, he did apparently pay for some of her legal representation. I think he did that for a lot of people he wrote about so he could have the scoop. Other typhoid Marys made headlines over the years. The phrase is still used and people seem to understand the concept, even if like me, they don't know the whole story. People do understand it's somebody that you don't know has a disease and spreads the disease. Right. And there is more to Mary's story. On February 3rd, 1915, the Evening World of New York City had a headline, 20 are stricken with typhoid in Sloan Hospital. In the article, Martha Russell, the hospital superintendent, said, it is most baffling. The milk and water have been proven innocent beyond suspicion, and we are now turning our attention to the employees of whom there are 125. No one has been allowed to leave the employee of the hospital since the fever broke out, end quote. The health department investigated, and it was discovered that everyone who had come down with the illness had eaten a gelatin dessert, apparently a great place for typhoid to hide. Mm. Four doctors, 10 nurses, one patient, the elevator man, and others fell ill. Two people died. By then, Dr. Josephine Baker, remember her, the one Mm -hmm. that went to get married? Right, yeah. She was head of the Child Hygiene Bureau. But the outbreak sparked her interest, and she decided to check it out. As she told the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in 1932, I was head of the Child Hygiene Bureau at the time, but I was interested in the Sloan case and went up to make an investigation for that reason. As I walked into the kitchen, the first person I met was Typhoid Mary Malin. She had been cooking for the hospital under the name Mrs. Brown. Officials tracked Mary to where she was living in Corona, Long Island. Someone saw her go into a house and reported her. Here is how the Buffalo Evening News described it. On Friday, a squad of the sanitary police immunized against typhoid surrounded the house under the direction of Lieutenant Samuel Belton. And this is me again. I'm not sure what they mean by immune. From what I've read, having typhoid does not make you immune to it later, although they might have thought that then. Um, And there were some inoculations, but they didn't seem to work. I read in some of my research that some of the doctors and nurses at Sloan had taken some kind of vaccine, but obviously it didn't make them immune. And I don't know if it helped. Anyway, quote, in a side street, an automobile was loaded with the other policemen and Dr. Westmoreland of the health department. When no response was made to a ring of the police at the front door, Sergeant Connolly mounted a ladder to the second floor window. As he poked his head inside, he was greeted by a growl from a bulldog who was immediately reinforced by a fox terrier. The sergeant made friends with the animals with a piece of meat and the police stepped in. They hurried from room to room, hearing doors slam just ahead of them and finally discovered a woman in the bathroom. She admitted, they said, that she was typhoid Mary. The Evening World's version was a little bit different. Sergeant Connolly, the health department inspector, yesterday visited Corona and saw a woman who looked much like the sought-after typhoid Mary. He tracked her to a house and then reported back to Dr. Goldwater. Last evening, as Miss Malin was looking from a second-story window, three gallant-looking gentlemen sauntered along. They were Dr. Westmoreland, head of the Riverside Hospital at North Brother Island, Sergeant Connolly, and John Bevins of the Sanitary Squad. All are typhoid immunes. Huh. Good evening, Miss Malin, called up one of the three. 
In went the head and slam went the window. The doors were tried. They were locked. So were the ground floor windows. Bevins got a ladder. To the second story window he climbed only to be encountered by two ferocious bulldogs. Anyway, the dogs succumbed to the charms of Bevins and he and the other immunes passed into the house. Typhoid Mary was hiding in the bathroom. When told she was wanted, she came forth and accompanied the health department officers to North Brother Island. The New York Tribune was more succinct. Admission being refused, the searchers obtained a ladder and got in through an upper window. The woman yielded to superior force and strategy <laughs> and admitted her identity. It's funny how different the details are, but I guess the overall story is the same. Mary was arrested again. As Dr. Josephine Baker said, so typhoid Mary was taken back to North Brother Island to spend the rest of her life. She was a woman in her 40s when she was first caught. She's in her late 60s, and she actually was, she was only in her early 60s, but whatever. Mm -hmm. She was in her late 60s today, a pitiful creature who never committed a crime, and yet who caused more deaths than the most desperate of killers. There are many other typhoid carriers in the city, all of whom have their freedom, by virtue of the fact that they report regularly and do not handle food that is to be eaten by others. Mary, who couldn't be trusted, is the only one confined. By the way, Dr. Baker had quite a long career and was the first woman in America to earn a doctorate in public health wow. or possibly the first woman ever. I couldn't, it wasn't really clear in the thing I read. And she was right. Mary never left Brother Island again. She stayed in her cottage and was given a job working in a laboratory there. The second time around, there wasn't as much public sympathy for Mary as there was the first time she was put in isolation. Although people did question why she was the only person this ever happened to. Despite there being other carriers, not all of them followed the rules, I'm sure. In 1931, the Victoria Times of British Columbia had an article about carriers of typhoid. It said, they have committed no crime, neither have they violated any of the unwritten codes that direct humanity, yet 257 persons in New York City are virtual prisoners under close surveillance by the official keepers of the health department. Dr. Charles Bolden of the New York Department of Health said in the article that it wasn't possible to get rid of the bacteria, but quote, we are seldom forced to restrain carriers now. All are under department supervision and are visited from time to time. The department makes sure they do not engage in food handling occupations. The article mentioned one case, but didn't give specifics of a carrier who quote, caused as many as 400 cases of the disease and dozens of deaths. Dr. Bowden said, it is unfortunate, but we are compelled to watch these people as closely as if they were criminals, although they have done nothing which should warrant such treatment. The typical carrier, like the renowned typhoid Mary, has millions of germs in his body, and if he handles food, he is sure to infect somebody. One man who had obeyed orders faithfully for years broke his parole and started helping his daughter in a candy store. A severe epidemic broke out in the section, and we finally traced the source of the infection to the man, end quote. In a lot of articles of the time about carriers, it's mentioned that women are more likely to be carriers. I think it's more that women are more likely to be discovered as carriers because they are more likely to be cooking yes. and doing the types of things where they would pass germs on. I'm sure there were and are just as many men carriers. On Christmas morning, 1932, a delivery man found Mary on the floor of her cottage, paralyzed from a stroke. After that, she was taken care of in the Riverside Hospital. 
1936, it was reported that she was near death and had been given her last rites by a Catholic priest. Mary was, of course, a very faithful Catholic. In November 1938, Mary died. Her funeral was attended by nine mourners, three men, three women, and three girls, none of whom would give their names to reporters. While the press characterized her as friendless and without family, that's not true. She was born September 23, 1869, in Cookstown, County Tyrone, Ireland. When she was 14 or 15, she traveled to the United States and lived with relatives and got domestic jobs until she started making her living as a cook. She said she never had typhoid fever. And it's often reported, even today, which is annoying because it's wrong, that she never had it. We don't know whether she had. She must have had it. It was reported that she once said that the only time she was sick was when she was a child and she had brain fever. The fuck knows what that is. Probably typhoid. Yeah. She either had it then or she contracted it at one time and just didn't have a lot of symptoms. She obviously had it because it was in her system. She was very evasive about her past. She had an Irish accent, but she told people she was born in the United States. And some newspapers thought she was born in Canada Hmm. and reported that at her death. She never talked about relatives and friends in public, but clearly she had them. And before her stroke, she entertained visitors in her cottage on North Brother Island. She was just not supposed to give them food or drink. I'm sure she had visitors after her stroke too. After her death and autopsy showed that Mary had gallstones and her gallbladder was full of salmonella typhi. And I read about it and apparently the bacteria clings to gallstones for some reason. So she probably could have rid herself of the bacteria if she had given in and had the operation, the gallbladder Mm. surgery. There are a few articles and columns about how people have to watch out for their servants bringing germs into the home. There was one in the Elmira Star Gazette in 1910 reprinted from the Literary Digest that said, since the people one hires as servants are from, quote, the great unwashed class, you have to be careful of them because they don't wash their hands. Mm -hmm. Now, the article had a good point that a lot of people don't think their hands are dirty unless they can see dirt. But there are also a lot of insulting assumptions made. Here's a a quote from it. How many of the servants that we hired to do our cooking and to care for our food are known to be free from disease germs? How many of them can be relied upon to wash their hands properly and at proper times so as to avoid the possibility of their sowing death and food that should supply us with lift? How long will it be before the mistress of the house can be made sure of the fact that Bridget has actually washed her hands Hmm. clean? before handling dish pot or plate and has given her hands an extra cleansing before handling the vittles. And it goes on to say that you basically have to really watch your servants and make them wash their hands. Mm. And it says it in a really shitty way, but it makes a point. It wasn't an unknown thing in 1910. Hand washing was important to get rid of germs, but a lot of people, it just didn't, if their hands weren't dirty, they just didn't think they needed it. And it was a fairly new concept. It was a fairly new concept. And Mary apparently didn't think she needed to wash her hands. And as I said, a lot of the time, the food she cooked was high enough heat that it killed the bacteria. One of the desserts she made that her summer employers loved was peach ice cream topped with fresh peaches cut by hand. Mm. So not cooked. And the gelatin pudding that made everyone sick at Sloan Hospital, not cooked. Mm. Mary never thought she was sick. She had good reason to believe this as she didn't feel sick and didn't look sick. I think the issue was that it was never explained to her in a satisfactory way. I think she was seen as a dumb Irish servant who wouldn't understand and she Mm -hmm. should just go along with what the doctors were telling her. 
She was a well-liked worker in the lab when she was on the island. And I don't know what she did for a job. I couldn't find out, but it seems like maybe after working there, she would have had a better understanding. But I mean, telling someone you have to have this surgery, that's scary. I know, and, especially back then. Surgery yeah. was not, uh, well, you could die. not a you safe could Still, thing. even now you can get an infection right. and die. Typhoid was not uncommon in the slummy sections of the city, and though it was an issue to the health department, they didn't send out teams of police to track down the cause of a bunch of poor people dying from it. If Mary had worked in some greasy spoon or was a cook in a factory or somewhere where a lot of poor people worked and got infected, would anyone have noticed? There have been a lot of arguments over the years as whether or not it was right to hold her against her will on North Brother Island. She was single, not wealthy, and was an immigrant from Ireland. And I think all those things worked against her. She didn't really have a support system. She's been cast as a villain over the years, although more recent things I've read are sympathetic to her and even claim she was a victim. I think she was a victim in a way, but I also think the health department didn't think it was right to let someone blatantly spread germs around the way she did, and they didn't know how else to deal with it. We've become complacent nowadays with antibiotics and vaccines, and it's easy to judge the state of New York, but on the other hand, Mary caused at least 47 cases of typhoid fever and three deaths, and it's unknown how many others she caused. And she never to her dying day felt she had caused any of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she... A lot of things used to, they don't do it as much now, but demonize her. Like she knew she had it and she didn't give right. a shit. She wasn't like that. She wasn't like that AIDS guy that went around spreading right. it. And I don't think she, right. I really I think remember she, when I was, she a was in kid, denial. Thinking the impression we were given was that she did it on purpose. Yeah. I think that's how it was. Yeah. So that is her story. Uh, there's people now. I mean, like, oh, I'm not sick. I don't have COVID, even though you're right. spreading it to people. You know, there's still, it's always going to be that. It is. It's a hashtag now, apparently, Typhoid Mary. And I'm not saying she's a villain at all. I don't Anything think she's a villain. A hashtag. I'm not saying I don't think she was a victim. She was a victim in a way, but I don't think the health department was totally a villain but i do think that the fact that rich people were dying of it was i was gonna say that i think it was a class thing if poor people were dying of it if she was they were dying some... of it no one cared right I mean, they right. cared she, but not if that she much. were cooking in some boarding house full that's of that's what i said poor yeah. people it wouldn't have mattered if they're hashtagging like somehow making themselves victims of this overzealous health crusade or whatever their point is i don't know I think it's the other way around people hashtagging people who are spreading it so either one is a false equivalency because nowadays we're informed exactly and there's no excuse say. to not know how covid19 exactly. or anything else spreads exactly you know there's you have no to reason wash not your to hands, wash your no hands what. yeah and i have an interesting little sidebar oh yeah about typhoid lest we think that only poor irish immigrant women's spread it up until the 1830s the White House, you know, where the president lives, they had to get their water, the servants had to go and get it in buckets. So one of the presidents in the 1830s, I can't remember which one it was, decided that they needed a water system. Hmm. The water system was completed in the late 1830s, and the first president who lived in the White House with this new water system was William Henry Harrison. Hmm. Now, the, back then, a lot wasn't known about germs and bacteria and stuff. This water system, which was a gravity-centered one, the yeah, pipes... a tank, like it the was ones built, in the other It was one. Yeah. built very near a canal that people used to dump sewage in. Oh. It was also near a spot, I guess a cesspool, where people <laughs> dumped their night soil, or, you know, people went with their chamber pots and dumped... Yeah. 
And William Henry Harrison, the story had long been, he gave a, and this is the true part of it, he gave a two-hour inaugural speech without a coat or hat on on a cold day. He was dead 31 days later. And it had long been, oh, he died of pneumonia, Pneumonia, whatever. Well, it turns out what he actually died of was typhoid. Mm. He was its first victim in the White House. And the cook in the White House was Mary Mary. Right. Oh, you spoiled it. (laughs) President James K. Polk, who was often sick, died in 1849, three months after he left the White House. But he had been sick on and off the whole time he lived there. President Zachary Taylor died one and a half years into his mm. holding office in 1850. They all died of typhoid. One of the most famous ones mm. was little Willie Lincoln, 11, Aww. who died in 1862. I first heard about this on the podcast Presidential, which which has an episode on each president yes. beginning with okay. Washington. It was very nice. good. And I had Sounds never heard good. of this before, hmm. but when I knew what you were doing, I looked it up and there isn't a lot on it. There's a Washington Post article and I think a New Yorker, maybe not. I can't remember, but they only named these four. But if I remember from that podcast, I didn't go back and listen to it. Several tangential, I shouldn't say tangential first ladies, adult daughter type people. There were, there were several victims over maybe a 40-year period. I'm trying to remember if it was after Zachary Taylor in 1850. They did find they were beginning to make the connection between raw sewage and people getting sick. <laughs> Duh. But, but but they built a new water system that had similar problems that went up to the second floor of the White House, and that's how <laughs> Willie Lincoln got sick. And, and this was the water people were drinking, they were bathing yeah. in, they were cooking with. I couldn't find... I didn't really spend a lot of time looking because I was doing other things. A comprehensive article, but I seem to remember on that podcast, several people besides those three presidents and Willie Lincoln dying of typhoid during that hmm. period connected to the White House. And you wonder how many servants and stuff. Oh, yeah. Who there's no historical record of, but this all just came out within the last 10 years. And it's funny. I was thinking when I was listening to that podcast, that's yeah, a big deal. Yeah, at the white at the White House, raw sewage was mixing with their water, yeah. and three presidents died. Because I know, of that. I know. And Willie Lincoln, who knows who else? And so it's an interesting thing, you know, when they somebody finally made the connection between bacteria, germs, and you know, washing your hands and yeah. boiling the water. Uh, it took people a long time it too. Did. But when Lincoln was shot. The doctors didn't really. Were, oh, they were all poking their fingers. I know. Ugh, and, yeah. yeah, I don't want to. But also, I mean, he probably would have lived if they, if yeah. they had actually washed their hands. Do the you ever think of how it. stuff must have smelled back then? Uh, That's why I always think like time travel things. It's like I don't want to go back in time because no. everyone freaking smelled. I mean, okay. you probably ugh. back then you were used to it, so you didn't think anything. Yeah, of maybe it. not. But oh, jeez. But anyway, that was interesting. There was some long, and I probably mixed her up with someone else, but there was some long period in my life where I thought she had worked in some kind of canning factory and had made people sick through, you know, people who got the cans of the sardines. I wonder who, there might have been somebody else. There might have been somebody else else. with that, yeah. And also... We don't know how many people she could have affected a hell of a lot more than we know, but she's not the only one. But well, thank you. You're welcome. And now I have a recommendation. Yay! Yeah. <laughs>
watched a three-part docuseries, Murders at Starved Rock, on HBO Max. Basically, this state park, three women, one was 47, and I think the two other were 50, were bludgeoned to death Ah. at Starved Rock State Park in Illinois. Interestingly, the murder happened on March 14th, 1960. Ooh. Which was the same day our sister Liz was born. Uh-huh. Maybe so, Liz is one of those well, women reincarnated. See, that's I was thinking at least we know mom and dad have an alibi. Oh. But they were in Elmira, New well, York. Mom does. So they were anyway. <laughs> and so this is not your typical true crime documentary for one very specific reason which makes it interesting but also becomes one of its biggest flaws which is the prosecutor was a young guy 26 it was his first murder case his son set about in 2005 to make a documentary his son was a professional hairdresser apparently a very successful one but he wanted to explore this case now this documentary was made in 2021 so it never really specified i don't know if somebody else picked up the slack but the son was the primary narrator throughout the documentary and there was footage that he took in 2005 um, in 2006 whatever when he was making it and then there's modern footage too Hmm. the director is listed as somebody named jody mcveigh schultz yeah, Mark Wahlberg's production company is one of the executive producers. So I don't know if somebody picked up the documentary from this guy and said, okay, we'll make your documentary Maybe for he you. Couldn't, he couldn't. Obviously, he started it in 2005 and, yeah. you know, he didn't. So David Recuglia is the son of the prosecutor. Okay. He's like our age. Um, Anthony Recuglia was the prosecutor. A guy named Chester Weger was arrested and convicted in 1961 of the murders. And the women murdered, by the way, were Frances Murphy, Mildred Lindquist, and Lillian Oding. Hmm. And they were wives of prominent Chicago businessmen. And they were taking a four-day trip to the park, and they were bludgeoned to death. So why don't I get into the reenactments? I'm taking away half a point for just the usual reason. There weren't a lot of reenactments, but there were unnecessary, like when somebody's talking the unnecessary showing so narrative cliches i'm also taking away half a point because of the b-roll stuff the person sitting down and getting the mic put on them Mm -hmm. and sighing and all that i'm just getting sick of that and it's a cliche that i see in a lot of true crime stuff and i get annoyed by when people rail against the justice system because somebody got parole or there's a mistrial or whatever and nobody makes the point if the police had done the job right in the first place this wouldn't have happened and nobody ever counters why we have a parole system and i know everybody just wants everybody to just rot in prison for the rest of their lives but there are reasons to have parole and stuff and i'm just tired of that so i'm taking away i think i'll take away a point between the b-roll stuff and that i just Okay. Get tired of it. But I realize if you're a family and somebody's killed or somebody ostensibly killed your loved one, you don't want the person out of prison or whatever. You just want them to be punished as much as possible. But that's why they're not the ones sitting on the jury or making exactly. Um, what's the next one? Racial gender obtuseness. 
There is some gender obtuseness about, there was another guy, the son of the owner of this resort at the state park, who was a peeping Tom and made Mm -hmm. women uncomfortable and stuff, but they didn't give enough attention to the women's stories about that. They were just like these tangential things. And then the guy's name is George Spiros and they don't give enough credence to his behavior. And then there's this convoluted thing. Well, he couldn't have done it because he was on this path and these people saw blah, blah, blah. It's like, why is this information about where he was legitimate when he was obviously more of a red flag than Chester was, but the documentary just kind of shrugs at these women who are obviously traumatized by this guy. In fact, they essentially discredit one of them that I won't go into, but it was annoying. Lack of good visuals. There were good visuals. It was a very high profile crime. So they have a lot of old photos from like 1960 and 61. They have video and interviews and stuff. And also just the layered thing of his stuff from 2005 and then the more modern stuff too. So there's a lot of stuff. So, and that's why they don't need the reenactments. Yeah. Because yeah, when you have all that stuff, you know, you don't need that. So exactly. But um, so I'm not taking anything away for visuals. What's the next one? Missing pieces. Missing pieces. I think it's interesting that on three episodes of this documentary, we find out very little about the three women who were killed, although some hmm. of their family members, a granddaughter of one and stuff, do speak, but it, they more speak about, I mean, they do talk a little about the person, but there's no narrative about the people. And I did hear a podcast about this a couple of years ago. I, I don't remember a lot about the podcast, but I remember there were a lot more about their husbands and the possibility that there was some, some, some involvement there. There's also missing pieces. Actually, I'm going to take away a point for missing pieces because there's also a huge missing piece. I could put this in storytelling, but there are other things to put in storytelling. One of the things that happened is after they interviewed Chester Weger for like thir- with him not having any sleep for 36 hours and he confessed, but it was probably mm. a false confession. Yeah. They then the cops, this is bizarre had him go to it was like this big stone like cave where their bodies were found near this waterfall had him go there and for the press reenact the murder using cops and show how he dragged the women into the cave and all this stuff and they treat it in the documentary like it's odd but nobody really talks that much about it and to me first of all that's going to hugely prejudice a jury because they have a picture in their mind of this guy doing that he didn't have a lawyer, mm. apparently. They don't go into that. And so, you know, there's a question whether he was innocent or guilty. And my, my feeling is just like, what's his name in making a murderer? Stephen Avery. Stephen yeah. Avery. Guilty or not, the cops need to do their jobs right in the first place. And the, it was just totally bizarre. They they showed John Reed of the Reed Technique because they gave the guy um, a couple polygraphs, which he either passed or didn't, depending on who you talked to. But they never go into the Reed Technique and the issues with it. And later he said his confession was coerced, but everybody, like the father who's now dead, the prosecutor, the father of the guy who originally made the documentary, scoff at that. He wasn't beaten. It wasn't coerced. They have a couple people kind of talk about it, but they don't really say what it means to interview somebody who isn't necessarily the brightest bulb and it has been awake for 36 hours and 
they obviously fed him information about stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's more, and I'll get into storytelling what more of that problem is. So I took away a point for that. What's the next thing? Inaccuracies and anachronisms. There's always the danger with when something took place back then of there being, you know, it was 60 years ago plus, but no, there was nothing that I can think of. Okay, storytelling. Okay, storytelling. I'm taking away a point. First of all, because well, I think that the whole thing of the of the son of the prosecutor making the documentary and the son is questioning if things went wrong and if mm-hmm. and if Chester was really possibly innocent and blah blah blah, but there's way too much nas- navel gazing by the guy and there's too much of it being about him and his feelings and his father there's also this is a little bit of a spoiler but it goes through this arc where he becomes convinced chester's innocent then in the last episode there's these little twists where maybe he's not innocent after all but i feel like they were manipulated for the story and the fact that they don't fully examine what happened in 1960 when Chester was arrested as far as the reenactment and him not having a lawyer and the questioning and all this kind of stuff makes the makes David's questioning about oh is it or now I don't know just annoying because the bigger question is the stuff that happened in 1960 how fucked up was that and if you really want to find the person who did that, you know, pull that stupid bullshit, you know, you have an actual legitimate investigation. And it's very muddled, actually, in the third episode, because like, for one thing, like, why did he drag the three women into the cave? And it's because he saw this airplane flying over and didn't want the airplane to see the bodies. And first of all, you know, it was a little, you know, one person, two person airplane. First of all, if the airplane the airplane's already going to have seen the body. So that's yeah. stupid anyway. But it turns out one of the cops who was this corrupt um, jerk off, typical knew somebody at the airfield and went to the airfield and blah, blah, blah. So it's very possible the cop knew this airplane flew over at the time and fed Chester. That yeah. is a possible, like a typical read technique thing. Is it yes, possible? Exactly. So, but they kind of muddle that up. And then in the third episode, there's this whole reason why the airplane thing it might be suspect that Chester really did see it, but it's not clear. You know, it's just way too muddled as he, as David struggles with his, did he do it? Didn't he do it? Then there's other things like when Chester was eight or something, he was a witness to his sister getting raped by some neighborhood boys. And then when he was 12, he was accused of, being a younger girl which maybe he did maybe he didn't the father the prosecutor in the 2005 interview is saying well he was sexually perverse and blah 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 and all this stuff so there's no discussion of what that kind of trauma would do and also that is i'm not saying he couldn't have committed those murders but what he did at 12 is not the same as what happened 10 years later And another thing about the storytelling is in the first two episodes, David really questions the information the police were giving and the honesty of some of the police and stuff. But then in the third one, he uses police report to support his 
oh, maybe he did do it. So for all that, it could take away even more than one point, but I'll just take away one. Freshness. It is fresh. First of all, the whole concept of the son of the prosecutor questioning the, the conviction and doing a documentary, much to his father's annoyance, although his father was cool about it. His father's like, why are you even questioning this? The guy was obviously guilty and stuff. It is something that you'd think you'd hear more about. It was a big deal at the time. And I do know that there was one podcast that I listened to that was about it, but it's really not something you hear a lot about. Maybe it's because there's a conviction so quickly. And But there was always a faction of people that thought Chester wasn't the murderer. Repetition? I'm taking away a point because of the, the drum beat. This could also be beating the drum actually. Yeah. Something else for that, but the, (laughs) the, um, the son agonizing over, this is my father and whole concept of the father son thing, which I understand is a decent angle. I just cited it in freshness, but again, Yes, we understand that the son is making a documentary about his the questioning the prosecution his father did, but spend less time reminding us about that constantly and more time actually looking more into some of the vital information that we could be getting about this. Beating the drum. Taking away a point. Are you keeping track of your points? Yes. By what the do you way? think I'm writing down here? Okay. Um, partly for all the stuff I've talked about, but there was another thing that really, really annoyed me. There's this old time small town reporter guy who also wrote a book about this. I think his name is Steve Stout, who David spends an inordinate amount of time talking to in 2005, and now you know who's convinced Chester did it, mm. and who's kind of a blowhard who doesn't obviously doesn't understand the issues that were problems with Chester's dealing with the police when he was arrested. And, and the guy's given way too much airtime. And also the way you end something, it should be boom, your final statement leaves the person watching with what you really think. And this guy gets the last word. On the, you know, basically that he'll always, that Chester Weger's guilty. And Chester ends up, spoiler-ish, getting paroled after being in prison for 60 years. Wow. Right as the pandemic is starting. But he wants to clear his name to have his conviction vacated, which I don't think is going to happen. But this guy is, you know, he wrote a book about it back whenever, and he thinks he's the world's biggest expert on it. And he probably knows more details than anyone else, but he doesn't seem to understand the issues. Yeah. The fact that he gets so much airtime and gets the final word, I feel like is beating the drum about the just the ignorance drum that kind of runs. Like in some ways, I really like this in my the first episode or so. I'm like, well, this is pretty good. But then I got more tired. Oh, and cliches, um, way too much of the guy driving in the car. Oh, yeah, I don't need I don't to see like somebody that. driving in their fucking car. And there is more stuff. I have six pages of notes on a legal mm. thing that I took while I was watching it. And I do recommend it, actually. But I recommend it with... Uh, What's your, fi- <laughs> your final score? Five? No, hang on. 
4.5. Well, it was close. Um, that said, I do recommend it, but I just, it's just like when we talked about the, the Billy Milligan documentary, mm-hmm. I get very frustrated. Like here they have John Reed, like a video of John Reed talking and it, not one word about what the issues are with the Reed technique. Yeah. You know, and they mention like a lot of ones do now. Well, you know, there's a reason polygraphs aren't allowed in court, blah, blah, blah. But they don't actually go into how polygraphs are used to manipulate people and somebody like Chester who mm-hmm. and how people are suggestible and how coercing a confession. And there's a couple voices like that, but I felt like it was more, I want to say vanity project or whatever, but it's like it couldn't decide whether to be about this son doing this kind of like that one that murder on the beach yes, or whatever yes. yeah which i yeah. didn't finish watching i didn't either because it got boring yeah. at the end and also these people who dig in their heels that somebody is guilty when there are obvious issues is that really how you want justice for your loved one to work for for there to be a faulty it must be it's really hard though i'm sure for family members to change their way of thinking right especially because as we've talked about in other episodes the way the police i don't want to say indoctrinate but they're the friends of the family in in a lot of cases and the prosecutors and Mm -hmm. that's where the family's getting all their information and they are manipulated by the prosecution and the police to see this guy as a quote-unquote monster which is another cliche a monster evil and what bugs me about this is it does in so many other ones that there are uh, there were two very obvious guys who were much better candidates for it than chester and the documentary makes kind of a case for that and then that third episode with the twists where the David kind of pulls back and says, well, now I don't know. And all this, I just thought it was bullshit. Well, thank you. Yeah. I might watch it. Yeah, you watch it. I want you I to think. watch it. I want you to watch it. I know. So that I never watch anything. Can I can't watch anything. Well, when I lived with them, I could, because I went up in my room. I you know, can Chromecast to your to computer. Do. I know. Well, I have stuff I have to do too. And I still watch stuff. But anyway, well, we can discuss it another time. Easier for you to say. It is easy for me to say. And next time, you're gonna yeah, you're gonna do a ranty one. It sounds like yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm probably not it, that it, you it, it you is don't usually rant, so it's something different, it's something new, <laughs> and it's something that's in the news. It's something that's in the news now too. Ooh. So I won't give too much away. And I'll try to get back to our schedule, get it out on schedule, because this is going to be a few days late. Yes. But you never know what's going to happen, though. Things happen. Well, we might be obliterated by a nuclear bomb before them anyway, so. Yeah. Well, hopefully, if the Russians are aiming for us, it won't be Maine. Yeah, but the way these bombs are now, it doesn't matter. It's going to kill everybody anyway. Well, that's a cheery note to end things on. The world will be dead. Yeah. The cockroaches will live. Yeah, well, we're rooting for the Ukraine. We're well, I'm rooting for, for the cockroaches. No, I am for that cute president there. Yeah, yeah. Cute. I'm a mini crush. Mini crush. Everybody has a crush on him. Yeah, except for Putin. Yeah. Anyway, anyway it's getting late. We should. Yes, go. I've got to go to bed. Got to get but up. Thanks for listening. Oh, Kitchens and also, don't design themselves, you know. Yeah. Huh, do an a, important job they will in like 3015 <laughs> when we all have our jet packs um anyways what and oh I, I wanted to say that perusing our statistics 
um, now that Blueberry, our hosting service, has redone the way it delivers stats, although there's still issues with the mobile app, we have a huge amount of listeners in Australia. And we're always talking Everybody? about the UK. Yeah, the US is first, then UK, and then Australia. We used to have Japan used to be way up there in our first year. I don't know mm. what happened over there. But um, interesting. But we just want to thank our Australian yes, thank you. listeners. Because we, we rarely we rarely from down under. down under. <laughs> it's summer there, right? From the now. land down under. Yeah. Yeah, but their fall is coming. They're gonna have winter. It's a, I don't think it gets cold there at all. Depends on where maybe no, they can think, tell no, us. They're they're sub equator equatorial. It doesn't get cold there. What about in like uh Tasmania and stuff? No, that's hot. It's tropical. It is not. Okay. You guys from Australia, you have to call you have to yeah, tell us. Let us know. Let us know. Because she you know how bad she's at math too. What does it have to do with geography? I don't know. Anyway, I guess we should go now. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody. I'll just get started. What are you doing? Mute. Mute. I can't read your lips. Read this lip. Yeah. Fuck you, too. Yeah. Right. I'll mute you, baby. Okay. I had to move my thing around, so I muted it. And Should we just... (laughs) Yeah. That You know, that can make you sick and die what you're doing there. Why did you just turn off your camera? I didn't mean to. Mm. That was originally slang for um, male masturbation. But now oh, really? just, yeah. I didn't yeah. think so. Well, Maybe a lot wrong. of people don't think so. But um, it was. I You can believe me on that. Okay. Okay. Anyway, why, why are you? I don't know. You do now because I told you. I know. I okay if anyway, you insist i do insist it's just very it's very hard to go i'm just kidding